Good morning and welcome to each one of you here this morning. We want to um, continue looking at scripture, at the book of Corinthians this morning. And I will tell you that one of the uh, challenges, I guess, or maybe it's the opportunities, is that when you preach through a book like this, you end up preaching on topics that you've not necessarily given a lot of thought to or that you would not have necessarily just chosen uh, if you were choosing what you were talking about. And that's certainly one of these this morning. It's, uh, we're going to be looking at um, chapter 7 of, of 1 Corinthians. Um, and the whole book of Corinthians is interesting in that... In a lot of ways, I feel like it uh, gives us, or how should I, that the, the, what the Corinthian church was facing and what Paul is addressing to the Corinthians is as relevant to a 21st century church as probably any letter that we have uh, in, in the New Testament, and in a practical way. And so there are certainly very practical aspects of this. But like I said, it would not necessarily be one that I would just simply to choose to preach on. The first six chapters of um, the first six chapters of Corinthians is very different than where we are now uh, in chapter seven. The first six chapters. Paul was addressing very specific issues uh, or deficiencies or problems that he was aware of in the church at Corinth and that he wanted to very directly address. Uh, in these first six chapters, he calls the church to unity, uh, calls them to reject factions that were occurring within the church. He reminds them that the cross and the crucifixion is foolishness to unbelievers, and yet it's so important and so critical to believers. He shows the Corinthians that the wisdom of God is far superior to that of the, even the most impressive human wisdom. He calls the church out for tolerating gross sin and um, within the church, and he literally calls them to remove and I know this is strong language, but I think it's a good picture to dismember that person, the man that was living in blatant immorality from the church, uh, to excommunicate them. He also tells them that lawsuits between believers and sexual immorality are wrong. And, but in a more general sense, he was telling them, stay away from anything that our selfish ambitions desire at the expense of our brothers and sisters in the church, of those in the church. And so, you know, we don't pursue those things that, um, that cost or inflict uh, damage to our fellow church family. Chapter 7, then, is a clear transition to the main part of the book uh, of this letter. So for now, for a, several, for a number of chapters, Paul is going to shift his focus from what he sees as needs and deficiencies in the church to addressing the questions that they have raised with him and, and things that they're asking him about. So rather than correcting current actions, he's giving a response to these specific questions and challenges that they have about the church. 
Now, what makes it interesting is that we don't actually have the questions that they were asking. We just simply have his response. And so we have, you look, based on the response, we can infer and we can have some reasonable understanding of what was being asked, but we don't know exactly. And so that's the case here for chapter seven and the context of, of this. I've entitled this morning's message, Singleness and Marriage. Um, the issue, and we're gonna look at kind of the context here before we read or begin to dive into it. What is the issue that they were raising? We don't know for sure. But it seems as if there were some in Corinth that were advocating celibacy as the best way to serve Christ, including even those individuals that were married. So the overarching context for Paul's response is centered around that idea, just a number of times throughout the book here. How can a person best serve Jesus Christ? And what's interesting is that Paul responds not with one clear answer, but he usually gives a, two perspectives. He gives one perspective and then the other perspective to various aspects of this. He's taking more of an approach of yes, but there's also another way of thinking about this. Um, and so he's not, he's not doing like he did in the first six chapters where he's giving clear commands as to what you need to do. He doesn't dismiss celibacy as heretical, but not, neither does, does he teach that it's the better way of, of living. Rather, he states that celibacy is good. Then immediately also clearly states that marriage is good. One is not superior to the other. Both are excellent. Both can further the kingdom of God. And while he points out some benefits of celibacy, he also points out benefits of marriage. Uh, which are equally valid. And we can see several clear principles about marriage that Paul, uh, in Paul's response and in his explanation that he gives to this question. So I'd like for you, as we go through this and kind of walk through here, not, in, not verse by verse, but kind of section by section, be thinking about what principles of marriage that Paul is reinforcing here, even if he's not specifically stating them. Now he starts this out now concerning the matters that you wrote to me. So obviously he received a letter and, and so forth. And then the last part of verse one in chapter, in, in the King James Version translates the statement this way. And I'm assuming it was part of the question that they were asking. It is good for a man not to touch a woman. Now that Okay, so what does Paul mean by that? Um, this does not mean touch in the way that we think about and use the word touch. Uh, in the same way that's when scripture says that a man knew his wife, they did not mean knowing in the way that we use the word knowing. Similarly, the way the word touch is used here and uh, as, is the same way as when a man knows his wife. It's talking about sexual relationships with. And so that is the context of that. The English Standard Version translates this statement, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. And so when you understand that this is talking, of, this was a 
call for celibacy in all relationships, then that makes sense. And that is part of the basis of this statement. And so that is what he is responding to. So understanding what is meant with these opening words really is, is critical to make, having the entire chapter make more sense. Because there were believers in Corinth apparently advocating complete abstinence from sexual relations for married couples. And, and so Paul is addressing this and the question of singleness in this uh, chapter. So let's stand together and we're going to read the first 16 verses together. <clears throat> I'm going to read this from the English Standard Version simply because there are some words used in the King James that are not co as common for us today. And I think that the English Standard uh, flows better and makes more sense in today's language. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband and the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? You may be seated. <clears throat> So like I said, <clears throat> Paul is addressing five different scenarios uh, in this chapter, and we're going to be looking at each of these briefly. <clears throat> but he, so he begins with the first scenario is that to married couples, verses 2 through 7. And it's interesting. He begins verse 2 with the word but. And we see this again and again through this as he's addressing these various situations. 
he lays out, he makes a point and then a counterpoint and gives the other side of it. And, and this is certainly a counterpoint to what just proceeded in verse 1, where it says uh, it's not good for a man to have sexual relations with a woman. The ones that were advocating for celibacy were using that phrase to apply to marriage. And Paul counters that with verses 2 through 5, making it clear that sexual relations between a husband and wife are not only appropriate, but it's important to not withhold that from your spouse. Paul gives equal weight to both the husband's responsibility to the wife and the wife's responsibility uh, to the husband. And that is, was certainly a countercultural perspective for a woman to be considered uh, on equal, have equal rights in that kind of a setting as a man because in that setting, women were considered the property of, of the husband or the man. Now, Paul goes on to say that if there's mutual agreement for a defined period of time, abstinence can certainly be practiced in marriage. But that should not be um, the focal point. <clears throat> Paul then interjects um, that he wishes that all were like him, unmarried. Um, but then he follows that again with another statement, but each has his own gift from God. And so it's not like he's, he's not commanding this, but he's, he's giving several perspectives here. Gifts are different. Not everyone has the same gift. You can't put everyone into a single mold because there's going to be differences and all of that is good. And so there's not just one way of looking at this. The second scenario then is in uh, verses 8 and 9. And I'm calling this uh, scenario the widowed. <clears throat> and he says he addresses the unmarried and the widows. According to several commentators, this word, uh, the Greek language in the first century did not have a word that for men whose wife had died or widowers. The word unmarried that is used here literally means any person that is unmarried, and that includes widows. Uh, it's, it, it would include anyone that is unmarried. And so when he says here that he's speak now about the unmarried and the widows. It's not clear why he would use the term widows if he was not referring maybe to the widowers as well. We don't know that exactly here, but he's clearly talking to widows at least in this context. What is interesting about this then is the second part of this verse uh, in verse 9, then, is when he says, you should be as, remain as I am. Uh, if he, well, he's, uh, it gives credence to the possibility that Paul may have been widowed, because he's including himself right in here with this. To the unmarried and the widows, I wish that you remained as I am. Um, but then not saying that he, they, but also giving them the freedom to remarry. Also, another reason why I'm thinking that this might be related just to the widows and the widowers is that later on he talks about other unmarried individuals later in the chapter. 
But he does say then to these specific individuals, whoever he's addressing, it is good for them to remain single as I am. Um, but then he balances that out again with a statement with a word but and gives the other perspective that it's completely permissible for them to get married and appropriate as well. Verses 12 to 16, we have the third scenario. And um, this has to do with believers being married to unbelievers. You know, it's not unusual at all. It certainly wasn't unusual in the early church or even on the mission field today that either the husband or the wife be converted and become Christians and their spouse does not. That's a reality. And so he begins this section by saying, I, not the Lord, says this. For me, that always was like, okay, what is he saying here? Does, what does he mean? Does this mean that this section is only Paul's opinion and not truly God's word for us? What does he mean when he, earlier in verse uh, 10, I believe it was, he says, the Lord, not I, but the Lord. But here he says, I, not the Lord. As I've studied this, commentators are pretty much are unanimous on this, uh, or I didn't see any that had any. That's not at all what he's referring. It's not that this is just Paul's opinion. When Paul stated previously, not I, but the Lord, he's referring to very direct and clear teaching by Jesus himself when he was here on earth. So he's simply repeating what Jesus had declared. Now, when it comes to this question, he says, I, not the Lord, he's acknowledging that Jesus did not directly address this question, this specific question. But he is responding based on the Holy Spirit's instruction to him. And he, he concludes that at the end of verse 40, he also says that he has the Spirit of God. And so this is not just an opinion of Paul's, but rather, it's just as inspired as Jesus' own teaching because the Holy Spirit has revealed that to him. And so um, I think that's very important for us to understand what he's saying when he says, I, not the Lord. It's simply that Jesus did not give direct command about this particular question. And so he is giving his command or his perspective, uh, his teaching. The summarizing Paul's instructions about a believer being married to an unbeliever. And I'm just going to kind of paraphrase what I see him saying here, is that the believing spouse should stay in the relationship, in the marriage relationship. The influence of the believing spouse may win over the unbelieving spouse. It's not a guarantee, but that may be the case. Also, the influence of the believing spouse will have a powerful influence on the children. And exactly what that all means, uh, exactly I can't tell you, but there's clearly uh, a powerful influence there. If the unbelieving spouse leaves or deserts or divorces the believer, Paul says, let it be. Let it, so let it be. Uh, don't try to stop it. But then when this happens, the believing spouse should not feel guilt, but be at peace, not enslaved. They're no longer enslaved to the unbelieving spouse um, in that scenario. And so that, that summarizes how Paul feels like they ought to respond to that. 
because here again, these that were advocating for celibacy were, it sounds like they were advocating there needs to be a separation there automatically. And Paul is saying, no, you stay together uh, as long as possible. I want to read the next uh, section here. <clears throat> Excuse me. Verses 17 to 24. The first time, the first several times I read this, it felt like this is kind of a bunny trail or he's changing the subject in the middle of this whole chapter. Um, because it feels like he changes completely away from marriage and now he's talking about something else and then he comes back to marriage again. However, to me, it's more like he has interjected several illustrations here in the middle of this to kind of demonstrate what he is, uh, what point he's trying to make to give us even better perspective. So verse 17, <clears throat> let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him, to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the same, at, I'm sorry, was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his, sorry, was anyone at the time his call uncircumcised, let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who is called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, who is free when he is called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, let him remain with God. There, let him remain with God. Three different times in these few verses, Paul says something to the effect, and he states it three different ways, live in the way that you are called. Or um, the way that I've entitled this section is bloom where you're planted. In verse 17, let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. Verse 20, each one of you should remain in the condition in which he was called. Verse 24, in whatever condition each was called, let him remain with God. So he's, he's making the point that don't wish for something that you're not, I think is really what he's saying. Don't, don't long for something that is different from where God has put you. So he uses the illustration of circumcision and slave and free, and he's reiterating that neither is superior to the other. It's just simply the way, it's the way that we are. And both are good. You know, if you're a Jew, don't wish to be a Gentile. If you're a Gentile, don't wish you're a Jew. If you're freed, don't wish you were a slave. And likewise, if you're a slave, don't wish you were free. In the end, it doesn't matter anything. In Christ, we're all equal, and we're to be who we are where God has placed us. Bloom where you're planted. Don't wish you were married when you're not. 
don't wish you weren't married when you are. Uh, is, I think what he's, the, the point that he's making here, find contentment and meaning where God has put you. Don't try to change where God has planted you, but be content with where you are. You know, for the slaves, he did say that if you have opportunity to be freed, you should accept that. And, you know, and you could use the illustration here, you know, what, what's freedom? Is marriage freedom or is singleness freedom? But, you know, if you have the opportunity to be married, it's fine if you accept that. The slave is fine if they accept that freedom. And likewise, if you have the opportunity to be married, that's fine. But don't put your identity in your marital status or where but find purpose and meaning where God has placed you and in where God has chosen to put you. If God changes that, be also willing to accept that change as well. Now continuing down to the latter part of the chapter, let's read the rest of the chapter together, verses 25 to 40. <clears throat> Now, concerning the betrothed, and I will just mention right now that the King James Version uses the word um, virgins for betrothed, but the context is it's quite obvious he's talking about individuals that are engaged. <clears throat> now, concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles. And I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not as as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as those as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods. And those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it, for the present form of this world is passing away. I want you free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and how his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong and it has to be, let him do as he wishes, let them marry. It is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessary, under no necessity, but having his desire under control, and has determined that this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. 
A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is, and I think that I too have the Spirit of God. So this gets into the area of the engaged couples of that day. And there are several things that we ought to be aware of to put this into context uh, for that culture in that time. First of all, here they were generally talking about arranged marriages in that the parents uh, arranged the marriages of their children. And at times, these arranged marriages were even done so years in advance. So this is, may not have even been uh, very recent, but it could have been in, in the works for years. Second, and this is where, especially in our culture, this seems almost wrong in some ways, but it was common for young girls to be married as young as 12 or 13 years of age. And, and while the men would have been a number of years older. And so thinking about in that context is talking about what the challenges are that a couple would face. I think you could understand that this would not necessarily, there, there would certainly be challenges there in maturing uh, as a young couple and so forth. And it's also that the father of the bride would determine when the actual marriage would take place. So he had the final say as to when this was going to happen, uh, even if it was arranged in advance. And so this is the context that we're talking about here. And um, there is definitely some considerable question as to what Paul is referring to specifically in verses 25 to 31 about the distress uh, and the, um, the things that were going on. He talks about the appointed time has grown very short and the present world is passing away. What, what is he referring to there in discouraging or at least cautioning these, marriage, these betrothed individuals to go ahead and get married? I don't know. Uh, commentators certainly don't agree. Some believe that Paul was convinced the return of Christ was imminent. I personally don't find that very compelling uh, case for not getting married, uh, but, but some do believe that. Some believe that he's referring to either present or coming hardship and persecution for believers, and therefore it would be putting this couple in a difficult situation where the wife may end up by herself if her husband is persecuted and so forth. And if you're talking a 12 or 13 year old on their own, you can understand some of the concern there. Um, another point that is possible is that there are other historians that reference a severe famine at this time that they may have been infect, uh, affected by. And um, so there was just simply the present practicalities of doing this when it's even hard to find food for yourself. Why get married? 
and create even additional um, stress or distress uh, for a young couple. Um, so we don't know exactly what's going on, but I don't believe that this underlying reason is, is that crucial because Paul, but Paul is outlining here that it's okay to possibly delay a marriage or even cancel a marriage that has been arranged in the, you know, in the past, that, that they're betrothed. That's what he's saying is okay. Um, at the same time, he also makes it very clear that it's okay if they go ahead and get married. It's not sin if they do. But because of the stress that the circumstances, whatever they were, would put on a newlywed couple, it might be appropriate to delay and not proceed with marriage as originally planned. Um, but it, the choice is ultimately up to, in this case, it's not just the couple, but obviously the father of the bride as well. Um, so in, then in verses 32 through 35, Paul kind of lays out a case for remaining single. And he makes the contrast uh, of a married man that's concerned about worldly things and pleasing his wife. And by worldly things, he doesn't mean uh, the world so much as he's referring to the physical needs, the material, the financial, being able to provide for his wife. As a result, his interests are divided because he has to work to support his wife and provide support and so he can't focus 100% of his time to the things of God. Um, and, and so he says that they have divided interests or divided loyalties. And similarly for the woman, being married introduces the need to focus on the needs of her husband. And so her interests are also divided. And this keeps her from having her undivided focus and attention on the things of God. But Paul, even in all of this, he remains very clear, even pointing out that the trade-offs of marrying versus remaining single, marriage is excellent and singleness is excellent. It's not either or one is not superior to the other. Each of these has advantages uh, and disadvantages that the other does not have. So the, the fifth scenario then is, um, so the that was the, um, the betrothed or the engaged. And then the fifth scenario is the unmarried or the singles that he addresses. And this is more, he doesn't do it in a specific verses so much as throughout this passage. Again and again, he acknowledges and even advocates for the decision to remain unmarried. For someone seeking to serve God, this has certain advantages. You can give God your undivided devotion, focus, and attention. You don't have the responsibility of pleasing your spouse, and you don't have the added distraction of the material things that might be needed. At the same time, Paul makes it equally clear that this perspective should not be imposed on anyone. He makes it clear that the unmarried state is not superior to that of the married state, and he also makes it very clear that if someone chooses to marry, they don't sin. So in response to the question that Paul seems to have been presented to 
in the beginning of the chapter, his response seems pretty uh, clear. There's five scenarios that he has explored of how this works, and maybe even these specific scenarios he was asked about, we don't know. There is value in singleness and celibacy when it comes to undivided devotion to God. However, this should not be imposed on others, especially those that are married. And while singleness and celibacy has value, marriage and families have equal values, value. No one should be pressured into marriage, but in the same way, nobody should be pressured to remain single. Each has its own advantages as well as disadvantages when it comes to serving the Lord. Now, I realize that this is very general and high level looking at this chapter, but I think that that gives us a, an overview of this. Now I wanna focus on five principles of marriage that I see in these scenarios that Paul uh, presented and responded to. And these are not specifically mentioned as principles in here, but it's more things that you read between the lines, if you will, and that you can see that he has uh, given clarity to. So the first principle of marriage that I see here is that marriage is not for everyone. Um, and it doesn't mean that marriage is not right. It does not diminish the value of marriage in any way. Um, but at the same time, remaining single, one can serve God just as well being single as one can being married. And um, maybe I'll just interject here. That's, I've, I wonder sometimes even if people got married. There's some examples, and I can't recall all of, there's two or three missionaries, prominent pastors and missionaries who I have read have had horrible marriages. And I, uh, John Wesley was one of those, and I can't, there's a couple of others as well. And they really had they basically deserted their wives to preach the gospel in a lot of ways, and, and basically abandoned them. Maybe abandoned would be a better way. And there really was not a good marriage relationship. And in cases like that, you have to wonder, okay, what was the right, you know, what, were they doing what God wanted them to, or weren't they? Or, or what, what went wrong there? But marriage is not for everyone. One can serve uh, God, whether single or married, uh, equally effectively, I believe. Number two, marriage is between a man and a woman. More than a dozen times in this chapter, he uses the words husband and wife, man and wife. Uh, I, I, lost, I was started going through, I think it was up to 15 or 17 uh, times that that's used here in this chapter. And that really goes back to the creation principle God is the one who established marriage. It is between a husband and a wife. It is between a man and a woman. And marriage is defined by God. It is not defined by man-made laws. Uh, it doesn't matter what is legal. Um, that's not what marriage is uh, in, in the eyes of God. And uh, he, God is the one that defined and created 
and instituted marriage. <clears throat> so marriage is not for everyone. Marriage is between man and woman. Third, marriage is a commitment for life. Um, and we see this in verses 10 and 11, and I kind of glossed over this when I was going through here because it did not explicitly fit with the scenario I was talking about in verses 10 and 11, to the married, I give this charge, not I but the Lord. Here's where he references back to Jesus' direct teachings. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. Um, so he, he restates and emphasizes that marriage is a commitment for life. He does the same in verses 39 and 40 then, the last two verses. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. Um, and then it goes on, yet in my judgment, it's happier if she remains as she is. But again, verse 39, stating that <clears throat> a wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. So marriage is a lifeline, lifetime commitment. Singleness and celibacy are not. Just because you choose to or you say that you are going to be celibate, that is not a lifetime commitment. That you can, you can serve God singly for 50 years and you may get married at some point. And so I, that's the, one of the distinctions I want to make here. Because God may call you to marriage even after an extended season of singleness. Um, that, that is entirely possible. It is not the same. You're, you're not making a commitment for life in singleness. Fourthly, marriage is recognized by God even when believers, even when unbelievers are married. And we see that in the middle part of this chapter in verses 12 um, down through 16, is where he talks about the believers and the unbelievers. Clearly, God recognized the marriage that existed between those two, even though they had been unbelievers until um, the one spouse was converted. And then fifthly, any sexual relations outside of marriage is sin. And again, some of these were not explicitly stated in here, but as you are reading them, that is clearly what is also being taught uh, throughout this as well. So the five principles that I see here is marriage is not for everyone. Marriage is between man and woman. Marriage is commitment for life. Marriage is recognized by God. Um, and any sexual relations outside of marriage is sin. So in conclusion, what, what are the practical implications of this chapter for us today? I think it comes back to kind of what seems to be the central question that is being asked of Paul. How can you or how can I best serve Jesus Christ in the church? And I believe that it comes back to kind of that center section uh, where we're talking about embrace where God has placed you. You do, each one of us has purpose and we can find fulfillment exactly where we are. Uh, we don't have to be something else. The grass is not necessarily greener on the other side of the fence. 
don't assume or speculate that marriage or singleness would be better than what you are in right now. And then probably maybe the most important part is take the focus off yourself and look for ways to simply live out your devotion to God where he has placed you. If, if we start looking for ways that we can serve God where we are, we won't have that discontent or longing for something that is uh, different than where God has put us. So in conclusion, bloom where you are planted and give God all the glory. Uh, let's stand together for a closing prayer. <clears throat> Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this letter to the Corinthian church. Thank you for the, this morning for Paul's response to this question of marriage and singleness in the church. And Lord, I want to thank you for your, um, your grace and your saving power in each one of our lives and the realization that we can effectively serve you wherever you have placed us. It's not contingent on being single or being married, but rather it's, we can find purpose, we can find fulfillment, we can find joy in serving you exactly where you have put us. I pray, Lord, that you would enable us to uh, remember this, to take our eyes off of ourselves, and to focus on what you want for our lives and to be faithful in, in serving and following you wherever you lead us. Dismiss us with your blessing and guide us throughout this week. In Jesus' name, 